Many salutations. Welcome to the podcast where we talk about murder and crime within the family. I am your host, Kaylee, and I would like to apologize for whatever the hell happened last week. I had the NPC episode all done. I uploaded it. It said successfully outed. And then this morning when I went to do something, I noticed that there was absolutely no indication that the podcast had ever existed. So I re-uploaded that. I apologize for the delay. I don't know what happened. Hopefully that does not happen again, but I will uh, double and triple check from now on just to be sure. The next case we'll be talking about here on It's All Relative is the case of Virginia McGinnis. She actually is known by several names, but we will get into that. But first, I'd like to start this podcast out with our little music from our friend Johnny Cash. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher. And it burns, burns, burns the ring of fire, the ring of fire. Before we get too into this episode, I do want to remind y'all that this is a true crime podcast and there are some very serious things we discuss here. Some of these things might not be quite up your alley if you are the kind of person that is squeamish, if you're the kind of person that is offended easily. So if that might be you, stop listening now. All right, to continue. In order to talk about Virginia McGinnis, we really need to start with her parents, her father, and how she came to be in existence. And just as a side yet very important note, most of the information for this episode came from a book written by David Heilbronner called Death Benefit. I actually read the original that was published in 1993. There is a much newer version, a newer print of this, that, and I, so I didn't read that. I don't know if anything has changed in there, if there's any addendums. What's going to be important here to understand is that there is a case that actually set off all of the investigation and all of the understanding and knowledge about Virginia. I don't want to get into that case yet because I think that going through all of the stuff that she did from the beginning and her early life, her home life, are going to be really important for putting together who she is as a person, putting together her psyche and kind of understanding where she comes from, why she does the shit that she does. So I am not going to tell you what that case is right now, but I do want you to understand that Heilbronner's book, Death Benefit, is what I've taken most of this from because there really isn't anything else right now. A lot of the stuff that is out there on her focuses much more on the more modern case that started all of this. A lot of the stuff about her life in Death Benefit is anecdotal. It's from people that remember her, people in the neighborhoods that she lived in, her ex-husband. And so keep that in mind. However, I do think that Even though it's anecdotal, there is enough consistency in these stories to definitely build a picture of her and her past life. The following comes directly from that book, and I quote, Christy Hoffman had left the United States Marine Corps a few years before moving to Ithaca in 1936. 
He had worked as a security guard in a Brooklyn bank, then moved on to the police department, but too drunk too often. Christy was soon out on the street, jobless, with a complaining wife, one noisy infant named Thomas, and another on the way. In the Marine Corps, Christy learned a number of enduring lessons, chief among them raw survival. In the face of Red Armies or the threat of World War, it seemed to Christy that about all a person could hope for was sticking it out on your own. You can't dig up every hill of potatoes, he instructed his family, then promptly piled all their worldly belongings into a truck and drove to upstate New York to set up a dairy farm. End quote. It was a relatively small community and the people helped one another out. When the crops were due in, all the people in the town would gather together at a particular farmer's house and help bring in the crops. Or if a barn needed raising, they would help raise the barn. The unspoken rule was what was expected in return was that the person that got the help would reciprocate that help the next time someone needed assistance and the person that got the help would feed and hydrate the people in the town. There would be food and drink. The Hoffman family, however, particularly Christy, became known really quick for being different. You would never see the inside of their house. It wasn't that they didn't turn up to help you, but there was sort of a begrudging feel if they had to turn up to help you or if you came to help them. There was also that begrudging feel in the air, and no one would get a single bite of food or a drop to drink the entire time they were there. Christy would in fact stand on the porch with a cigar watching everybody as if he were guarding the entrance to his palace. Mary Agnes, on the other hand, always acted like she was lauding it over everyone. She was putting on airs, which was really weird because they knew where she had come from, and it wasn't any high-rise in Manhattan. She did, however, act like she came from a high-rise in Manhattan. Again, from the book Death Benefit, and I quote, One blazing summer afternoon, a man hired to paint Christie's barn went to the front door of the house for a drink. He knocked. Hearing no answer, he went inside. You never seen such a filthy mess in all your life, he reported. And the smell in that place? It was like there were hogs living with the family. But the worst of it, they had the dogs doing the dishes. They just put the plates down on the floor for the dogs to lick them. The fellow couldn't bring himself to take a drink after what he'd seen, and nobody living in Tompkins County could blame him. End quote. And as if to add to this lovely picture of a cozy homestead, Christy Hoffman also nailed teddy bears and dead animals to the trees. And I quote, Why in the world did old Hoffman do it, nailing stuffed bunny rabbits and teddy bears up and down the big oak tree in front of their house only to let them rot? Was he trying to scare the children? End quote. Mary Agnes gave the town additional fodder for gossip. When anyone would catch her sneaking out of the house after Christy had drunk himself to sleep, to meet a man, any man, who would pay attention to her. Tommy, Virginia's older brother, was known for being really smart. In 1952, the town got a TV. Now, they didn't explain this, but a lot of times in these towns back then, a local store would get a TV or the richer family would get a TV, and then the expectation was people would be dropping by from the town to watch shows at your house because you were the one with the television. And I quote, We'd go down to Art Tuckerman's, and Tommy, he was the fastest with the quiz shows. Yes, sir, he was. End quote. Unfortunately, Tom also was said to quote-unquote mess with Ginger. This is the family that Ginger grew up in. I quote, Ginger didn't have any friends, Nelson Eddie remembers. Of course, who'd want to get close to her? She smelled so awful. She was bigger than all of us, too, and a vicious bully. 
When she was eight years old, she stabbed me in the hand with a pencil after I pulled at her pigtails. I've still got the lead in my palm. End quote. Christy apparently didn't give them a lot to eat, or I, it's hard to tell. It looks like it might have been just ginger. She started by stealing people's lunches at school, and everybody kind of knew she did it. She would also hide places for hours, and nobody could find her. Um, they say she had got kind of devious. She had sort of a devious look about her. Okay, Art Tuckerman was like the bus driver, apparently, and one of the gals on the bus, she it says... For a few tense moments, Mary Baker would watch in silence from the back seat as the large male paw crept up the girl's plaid dress. Then she would turn her eyes away. The subject was too frightening to contemplate, much less talk about. All the more so since Ginger never seemed to complain. And every morning she hopped in front at Art's beckoning. So basically Art, who is, I don't know, they don't, I don't know if they ever actually say how old he is, but he's definitely, you know, these are kids, uh, you know. 12, 13, 14 year old kids and he's, you know, maybe 40. So yeah. Mary also spied raised red welts on Ginger's hands and arms. She and the other children could at least whisper about that. But in rural New York in the 1940s there was discipline and then there was strict discipline and all of it was considered private family business. In the fall of 1953, two teenagers from Tompkins County Dick Coates and Bert Chase happened to notice an orange glow in the sky, realized it was fire, and ran toward it to see what was going on. Now granted, I'm pretty sure that at this point both Dick and Virginia knew each other. They may not have known each other really well, but they probably at least had a passing knowledge of each other. But at this point, when Dick gets to the blaze, he finds out that not only is the Hoffman barn on fire, but he happens to notice the glow in Ginger's eyes as she watches the barn burn, thinks it's kind of sexy, and at that point, he's hooked. There are rumors going about town that it may have been an inside job on that fire. A pair of insurance company adjusters show up to visit the remains of Christie's barn, see it's a total loss, and hand over a check. For whatever reason, Christie allowed Ginger to keep a horse and in the spring of 1954 Ginger comes home with Dick to find that her father has decided that they can no longer keep the horse he's already killed the horse and has it draining out with the collection of company not only coming it arrives shortly thereafter and takes the horse away to be sold for glue soon after Ginger gets pregnant and by the fall of 1954, Dick and Ginger are married. He's 19, she's 17. Dick and Ginger have to move in with his family, but her stealing gets them kicked out. And so turn up to stay with Christy and Mary Agnes Hoffman. And to illustrate how well things are going at the Hoffman household, I quote, One winter evening, Dick pulled his truck into Christy Hoffman's driveway. Dick had been logging, hauling timber out beyond Lake Cayuga. Work ended, as always, when the light gave out. Inside the house, Ginger, now well into her pregnancy, stood by the kitchen sink. She wore a pressed white apron over still one more dress Dick had never seen before, one that accommodated her swollen belly. From the look of the counter, she had been preparing dinner, washing vegetables, cutting beans with a large, square butcher's knife. Where's the money you made today? She asked as Dick slumped into a chair in front of the living room stove. 
Dick picked through his pockets theatrically and finding nothing announced smartly. Hell, I forgot all about it. But shit, Donnie will pay me double tomorrow. No, he won't. You spent the money, didn't you? Honest, Ginger, I just forgot. I'll get the money tomorrow. Ginger's face settled into a vacant stare. Her eyes glazed and hard. She was in that mood again. Dick understood. The mood where things usually got bad and the best strategy was to lay low. Then, all at once, he heard steps running across the floor behind him. Rising out of a half-sleep, he turned and saw his wife. Hair perfect, dressed clean and pressed, coming at him with the butcher knife. Her pretty face had turned into a mask. Damn, you idiot, where's that money? She shouted in a voice Dick scarcely recognized. Then the knife came past him in a downward swipe. End quote. So basically, this goes on for a little bit. He tries to talk her out of it. Ginger doesn't seem to hear. She keeps trying to come after him with the knife. And basically, he somehow slips past her and runs out into his truck, drives away, watching her standing on a French porch with the knife raised and her face lit red by the taillights of his truck. And yet, he still is not leaving her. In the fall of 1955, Dick finds out that she's been having sexual flings and the whole town knew but him, so he feels like a complete fool, and her answer is, I can do what I want. Also, by 1955, they are in a rented house. By 1957, they're still in this house. They've had a second child, Jimmy. By this time, it is pretty sure Virginia's going along the same lines as her mother, where not only having flings, but everything has to be perfect with her. Everything has to be upper class. I quote, so no one had ever witnessed anything quite like it. The big, brown-bobbed woman, neat as a pin, stealing anything she could get her mitts on. Ginger had even gone to visit an old friend at school wearing a quote-unquote new fur coat that one of the teachers bare recognized as her own. Ginger came home furious that she'd been made to give it back. End quote. Winter 1958, Dick and Ginger's rented house goes on fire. And when he wakes up, he has to pull the boys out of the house and when he gets outside ginger's already there watching as the fire department trucks pulled in and dick starts to wonder a few days later wait a minute why wasn't she there with me when i woke up and why is she already outside summer 1959 dick comes home no virginia boys by themselves eventually about eight o'clock at night he gets a phone call from a lawyer representing a woman called Beverly Mokes, who happens to be the name of a gal they went to school with who Virginia didn't like. And this woman had been arrested for passing bad checks. It just turned out to be Virginia using that name. Dick hops in the truck and he arrives to get her out of jail. Ginger's attorney cost them $100, which was the retainer to represent his wife during the felony proceedings. And then when they get home from all of this, the Ithaca Journal has an article on it announcing July 6, 1959, that Mrs. Virginia Coates was arrested for passing bad checks and using Beverly Moak's name. In the fall of 1961, Dick and a friend had spent the day planting a new vegetable garden and it had gone late and the friend had fallen asleep at their house and he's the one that discovered the house is on fire. Again. Luckily he woke up early enough at, that they were able to bring the hose in and put the fire out. In the winter of 1966, Virginia and Dick finally broke up. Notice it took still another five years after that last fire. In his defense, people didn't really get divorced at this time. Additionally, several years earlier, he went and talked to somebody about what he should do. He really kind of wanted to leave Virginia, but this person 
told him that he always thought Virginia was an acceptably nice woman and he should go home and do his duty as a husband. Ronnie at this point was 11 and Jimmy was 10. Virginia gets in the truck, takes the boys, and they pretty much never see each other again. She moved back in with her father, Christy, at Bostwick Road, but lo and behold, that house catches on fire. Dick finds out about it in the paper in March 1967. And in this case, Virginia, trying to get out of the house, landed on a 50-gallon metal milk can head first, and she ends up ha having to stay in the hospital for a while. Interestingly enough, an insurance guy shows up at Dick's house and says, I want to know where to send the check for your insurance. And Dick says, I don't have insurance. And then the insurance man says, you do have insurance. Here's your name. You're owed $10,000 because the Hoffman barn just burned down. And then later, Virginia calls on him and says, hey, that money, that's mine. I'm willing to give you 1000 because your name's on it, but give me the rest. He says, I told her I'd take the money, but she could go to hell. She got back in the car like she was going to leave, and then she turned it around and tried to run me down. I was laying there in the snow watching her drive off 90 miles an hour. Never seen her again except to get my share of the money. Not that it made no difference. A few years later, what with the debts she ran up in child support, I filed for bankruptcy. End quote. On February 25th, 1971, Virginia's divorce from Dick Coates became final, and the following June, she married Bud Reardon. They said he was something of an electrical Tom Swift. I quote, in 1955, on his 17th birthday, he had signed on with the Navy and rose to the ranks to become an electrical engineering technician. He worked on things that were quote-unquote sensitive. He developed an expertise in telemetry, collimation towers used for checking missile alignment, radar beams, tartar missile systems, and MK1118 computers. End quote. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ. Now, just after their marriage, Bud received a transfer to Louisville, and that July, the Reardon clan, now an entourage that included four grandparents and six children, moved into the house on Jefferson Hill Road in Fairdale, Kentucky. And who are these six children, you may ask? Well, Bud, whose real name is Sylvester, but he went by Bud, had three sons, Kenneth, Sylvester, and Butch. Then there's Virginia's two sons, Jimmy and Ronnie. In addition, there was a little girl named Cynthia Elaine Coates. Yes, that's right. Her last name was Coates, just like her two older brothers. However, even though the birth certificate listed Dick Coates as her father, he says that when she left in 1966, that was the end of it. He never saw her again, so there is no way that this little girl, who would have been born about two years later, could be his. So honestly, nobody knows where this little girl came from or who her father is. And it's even more suspicious when you find out some of the things that Virginia did later, but we'll leave that for right now. Interestingly, when they moved to Kentucky, they actually moved right across the street from a policeman named Jake. And I quote, People remembered the old Reardon place, a two-story wood-shingled home with a large front yard surrounded by white oaks. It had a sprawling field outback that led to a barn where they boarded the family horse. First Sugar, an ornery half-quarter horse, half-mule that Virginia referred to as her pony. Then Fancy, a part Arabian, 
The place was, in its way, typical Jefferson Hill Road. Everyone had a horse or two, everyone had a yard, everyone knew a little mechanics and carpentry, and everyone knew everyone else. I first met Virginia in the fall of the year they moved on to Jefferson Hill Road. She was a little fat, but even though she was overweight, I always had the picture of her growing up privileged. She dressed with a sort of studied casual look, flared skirt and a sweater, that sort of thing, and the expensive objects in her home. They were like $1,000 wheels on a $50 car. End quote. So Cynthia Elaine is supposedly Virginia's daughter, and everyone in the town loved this little girl. Almost all of the anecdotes we have about Virginia's life are relatively the same. This one does have some interesting differences. And when Cynthia Elaine was three years old, Virginia decides that she's going to take her daughter out to ride the horses. But it turns out to be kind of a crappy day weather-wise. And so the pony rides don't actually happen. So Virginia spends some time doing some things in the yard, tending to the horses. And while she's doing that, Cynthia Elaine wanders away into the barn. The hypothesis becomes that while she's in the barn, she was playing around on a tractor. Now there was a little tractor in the barn that's approximately the size of a riding lawnmower. The place that it was parked was over in kind of a little alcove in the barn. Somehow they figure in that Cynthia's playing around in the alcove on the tractor that she somehow got this rope around her neck, which honestly looks a lot more like twine than rope. But she got this rope around her neck and ended up hanging herself. Now, Virginia says after finding Cynthia's body, she goes in the house and grabs her father to deal with trying to maybe possibly save her. There is a report that instead of her father, it is her mother that she goes into the house and gets. Regardless, one of the parents comes out. Eventually, everybody's out watching this whole ordeal take place. Now, remember, everyone in the town loved this little girl. And so the fact that the police have been called, of course, gets around really quickly in this small town. And it draws a lot of people to the scene because all they have heard is that Cynthia Elaine has been harmed. Jake, actually, the policeman that lived across the street from them, he had actually been over helping out that day on the farm. He had been doing something mechanical, but ended up having to stop in the middle of what he was doing to go to the police station and start his shift. So he had left all of the parts and pieces laying around in order for him to come back later and finish up what he had been doing. So when he gets the call, which by the way is very shortly after he gets to the police station, when he gets the call, he's afraid that it was actually his fault that the little girl had gotten hurt because he had left that stuff laying around and maybe she had gotten into some of it. And Jake is a bit suspicious. He is a rather new policeman on the force, so he doesn't necessarily feel a lot of confidence in voicing his opinions of what may or may not have happened on this scene, but he does find some things odd. For instance, like I said, that twine, which is supposedly rope, but it's twine, that twine, if she had been hanged, would have produced a very tight, narrow wound on the girl's neck 
When he gets to the scene, of course, she's laying out on the ground, but what he sees is bruises on her neck that are too big to be from this twine, and there's blood coming out of her nostrils. Now, the police in general, though, not having any more to go on other than what they've been told, are very loath to add more pain and hardship to this family who's just lost their little child. And so they do end up closing this case as an accident. One of the other things that Jake finds a little odd is the accounts that the police are being given on what happened this day. Like I said, there are some varying accounts of what happened. And one of them is that when they found the little girl's body, she wasn't actually hanging. She was sitting propped up on the tractor with this rope around her neck, but not actually hanging, so nobody had to cut her down. So the thought would be that possibly she had gotten tangled in the rope and it was just enough tension on the rope once she got herself tangled in it that even sitting down, it put pressure on her neck and she suffocated. Granted, the wound patterns and the way she was found make it a little difficult to be really confident in any sort of cause of death, even remotely related to the fact that she hanged herself. Terry Pullen lived two houses down and briefly dated Jimmy. And I quote, when little Cynthia died, Jimmy came over and said she had been hanged by a horse. End quote. Again, at this time, they didn't necessarily have the forensic training that we had, and the police in this small town did look at things differently, and they didn't necessarily know the Reardons to the point where, or in this case, the Coates, to the point that they would kill their own child. I gotta point out here, though, that this three-year-old little girl did have life insurance on her. Granted, a lot of people have life insurance on their kids. It's usually just enough to cover the burial costs. Sometimes these are officially called burial policies. But in any event, this little girl did have life insurance on her. And Virginia wasted no time in claiming that after the little girl was pronounced dead. There is one more point here I'm going to add before we close this session up for today. and concerns one of her son's girlfriends a couple years after this episode. And we'll just, you know kind of draw whatever conclusions you feel are appropriate to draw. So this woman's name is Debbie Abel. She was married to Jimmy. While they were dating, they had an okay relationship, but afterwards things got kind of ugly, and we'll talk about the boys in the next episode of this podcast. This is what she said when she was asked about Virginia. Quote, after we got married, she said, we started having hard times and I had a baby girl named Jackie who Virginia was crazy about. Virginia is a really strange woman. I mean, she's like a black widow spider to me and I was scared of her. She more or less seemed like she was starting to control me with Jackie. At the time, I was so scared of the woman. It was awful. There was just a way that woman was. She offered me $500 for her. That sticks real well in my mind because now I think, gosh, that's so cheap, $500. Now, when you say she offered you $500 for the child, basically it already is her granddaughter. Would you explain what's behind that? I didn't see it as a granddaughter relationship. That's another thing. My mother came in and took Jackie out of the house. And when she did, all kinds of stuff got started. Virginia went crazy. She ended up calling the police, taking them to my mother's house, demanding, wanting Jackie back. She said that when she got Jackie back, that more or less 
she wants to. She wanted to take Jackie to California with her while me and Jimmy and the grandfather stayed here in Louisville for at least three months. She never went into detail on anything. There was never a reason why she did things she did, just that she did. Did Virginia ever encourage you to get life insurance? Yes, Abel's voice slowed, her thoughts coming together. Now, I'm not real vivid about it. I know she brought it up, wanting me to get insurance on Jackie. Not me and Jimmy, just her. At the kitchen table, it just popped up, you know, about the insurance. She asked if Jackie had any, and I said no. Can you think of any reason back then why she would purchase life insurance on your child? Yeah, she wanted to kill my child. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. Why do you think Virginia wanted to kill the girl? I don't know, money. She was obsessed with having beautiful things. You know, there wasn't a thing she didn't own that wasn't the finest, or there wasn't nothing she didn't buy that wasn't. End quote. So in the next episode of It's All Relative, we will talk about Virginia's boys and how they turned out. We're going to talk about her second husband and what happened to him. We'll talk about her mother. And we may even get into the case that started all of this research to begin with. Once again, I sincerely appreciate you listening to It's All Relative. And we shall end this episode with Cliff Richard.